a very happy Easter to all of you. Uh, As Jordan mentioned earlier, this is suit and tie day at Harvest Community Church, the one Sunday out of the year where we really dress up to celebrate and commemorate the most amazing day, the most amazing weekend that we commemorate in the entire year. If you've been around Harvest for a little while, you know how this works for me. I typically put this on for three occasions, weddings, funerals, and resurrections. And that is definitely worth celebrating. So I'm glad you could be with us to celebrate God together. We're we're not actually with one another. And I am longing for the time when we can get through this period of physical distancing and get back together again. But we are going to celebrate the resurrection of Christ and what that means for us as we get into God's word here in just a moment. Because Christ is not bound and the power of the resurrection is not bound. And so what I'd like to do right now is actually start by reading some of the resurrection narrative from Luke chapter 24. I'm not going to preach on that or comment on it. We're just going to soak in the discovery of Christ's resurrection and his last instructions to his disciples as the Bible records it for us. Then I'd like to lead us as a church into a time of prayer that God would use this time that even that we're apart to help us experience the power of his life in us in a more significant way. And then lastly, we're going to get into our main text this this morning in the Bible, which is from Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 7, which tells us so much about the power of the resurrection. So if you've got a Bible, I want to encourage you to open it to Luke chapter 24 and read along with me, or perhaps just close your eyes and listen as we give attention to the public reading of God's word and let him instruct us. I'm going to read Luke chapter 24, verses 1 through 12, and then also verses 36 to the end of the chapter. On the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices that they had prepared, and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee, that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified, and on the third day rise. And then they remembered his words. And returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James, and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles, but these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in, he saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them. And he said to them, Peace be to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought that they saw a spirit. He said to them, Why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet, and while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, Have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it before them. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you, 
while I was still with you. That everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And he said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that the repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning in Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things, and behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. But stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. And he led them out as far as Bethany. And lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. And they were continually in the temple, blessing God. Let me pray for us as a church. God, that story just of their joy, the disciples' joy, and being among the first to discover your missing body and then to see your dead body once again alive, eating, touching, hugging, embracing, teaching. God, what an incredible experience, not only for them, but as you say in your word, for us. God, I pray that that you would lead us, the members of this church, this Easter Sunday to experience you and the power of your resurrection in a new and more powerful way as we have already sung to you and will sing to you again as we now have heard your word and as we dive into study your word. God, even though we are physically apart, would you unite us in spirit, unite us through your spirit to the truth of who you are. And God, I pray that the power of your resurrection would permeate the lives of the members of our church in a new and fresh way right now. Father God, where we are facing fears and anxieties, where we are facing frustrations and uncertainties because of this viral pandemic we are in or other things associated with it, I pray, Father God, that you would fill us with your spirit, that those burdens, that those fears would be uh, blown away by the reality of who you are, that even though we still experience them, they would not control us, but spirit of God, that you would fill us and that you would control us. God, during this time of isolation, I pray that you would do your refining work. I don't know everything you intend to do, but I know because you've told us in your word that you always use trials, difficult circumstances to refine us. And so, God, whatever refining you would seek to do in us, whatever perhaps things we have taken for granted in our church or in our relationships with people or our relationship with you that we are now either missing or experiencing differently, I pray, Father, that you would help us to lean forward more strongly into you that you would awaken dead spirits, that you would fill lifeless hearts and loveless hearts with your life and your love, so that even when we are able to gather back together again, we will not be the same. God, we invite your refining work in our midst. And right now, Father, I pray that you would help us to see the truths from your word that you want us to see, not only to understand these truths, but experience these truths that your resurrection, your new life would lead to new life in this church and through this church. We pray, Father God, that your resurrection would lead to new life in the lives of thousands of people in the Hillsborough community for whom we have been praying for weeks. We pray that people would come to faith in Christ and repentance of sins and find new life in Christ. 
God, do your work. Though we are separated, you are not bound. Spirit, work in and through us to accomplish your purposes. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. I was thinking this week in in preparing for this sermon about the well-known story, Les Miserables, which many of you are probably familiar with. Jean Valjean, the main character, is an ex-convict who has served his time, a, a brutal and lengthy sentence merely for stealing. Though freed, as the story begins, he is a man without any significant hope. His status makes him an outcast because he has to carry papers that identify him as a past criminal. This also leaves him vulnerable to other people taking advantage of him, which they do regularly, because as a convicted criminal, he cannot expect the legal system to deal justly and fairly with him. And maybe above all, it leaves him with no prospects of steady employment. Nobody's going to want to hire him, so how is he to make his way in the world? He is a man who is bitter and hardened, and without hope. Well, a priest takes him in, the hardened and cynical Valjean, for the night, offers him food, feeds him, and a bed to sleep in. And in the middle of the night, in the early hours before anybody is awake, Valjean arises and he takes the silverware, which was made of real silver, and he puts it in his bag, he steals it, and he leaves, hits the road, intending to sell it. Well, the next day he's caught. He's dragged by the police back before the priest who find this ex-convict with a bag full of silverware and are able to deduce where it came from. And they grab him in irons and drag him before the priest and ask the priest to confirm the theft. Are these your silver pieces? Did this man steal from you? And if you know the story, you know this sets up the first like major climax at the early point of the story. For our main character, Valjean, this is it. This is it. Um, One more conviction, and Valjean is right back in prison, and it'll be for good this time. All the priest has to do is state the facts. Yes, this man stayed with me last night. Yes, that's my silver. Yes, he stole it. All true statements. And if he does that, Valjean's life is essentially over. His entire life, his entire future hangs on the priest's words. What will he say? What kind of man is he? Everything depends on it. And it's completely out of Valjean's hands. As we celebrate Christ's resurrection on Easter Sunday this morning, We're going to look at not only the fact that Jesus rose from the dead, but what that means for us, particularly as it is taught from the New Testament book of Ephesians, chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. After all, the story of Christ's death and resurrection and what that means for us is the entire Bible's central story. It's told from the beginning of the Bible to the end. It is the same story. In fact, we recently saw that story of Jesus foreshadowed as we walked through the Old Testament book of Exodus as a church. 
a series of sermons we just finished this past Sunday. And so today we're going to be in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 7, looking at the promise and the joy of Christ's resurrection and what it holds for us. And in the process of that, we're going to be tying a little bit of a bow and putting a final wrapping on our series in Exodus 2, as we will reflect back on how Exodus tells the crucifixion and resurrection story and the hope that we have in it. The Bible's story is a message about God's heart, about Jesus' death and resurrection, and about our present, and about our future. And so as we turn our attention now to Ephesians chapter 2, let me read this passage uninterrupted, and then we'll back up and notice some things from it. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath, just like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even while we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. For it is by grace that you have been saved. And raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. This is God's word for us today. Father, would you open our eyes that we might behold wondrous things in your word. It is in your son's name we ask it. Amen. I want us to notice three things from this passage. First of all, our need. What is the condition of humanity before God acted? If God had not acted, what state would we be in? Secondly, we see God's heart and who he is. And lastly, this passage brings that home to show us what impact that has on us today. So we begin by looking at our need. And you see that here in the first three verses of Ephesians chapter 2. What is the condition that we are in as people? Notice the Bible uses the term dead. It pulls no punches. Uh, you, this is addressed to Christian people in the first century. The Apostle Paul who's writing it says, you guys who are Christians, he invites them to reflect back on their life before they repented of their sins and found life in Christ. He says, without Christ, you are dead. He makes it clear later in the passage that that's just the same for all of mankind. Humanity is absolutely dead. According to the Bible, we are not a race of fairly good people trying our best to live as good a life as we can, but who occasionally need a little boost because after all, nobody's perfect. But overall, we're not that bad. That is not the picture we get from scripture. Rather, it says we're dead. If I haven't repented of my sins and banked on Christ's salvation, the Bible's description of my state is abundantly clear. I am not okay. All is not well. I am stone cold dead. 
Now, that's an interesting description of people who are not actually dead yet. After all, people walk around um, very much alive. I mean, in, in what way are we dead? Apart from Christ, many people are enjoying life and pursuing their dreams and would say they're very happy with their lives. They don't feel dead at all. What does the Bible mean by this? What it means is that we are, we are dead to God. In other words, we, we don't see him for who and what he is. And we're unresponsive to his truth, to his beauty, and to his sovereign rule. We're like people that have lived their entire lives underground in tunnels or in a cave and never having seen the light of day. The sun is up there blazing in its light and its warmth, but we have no perception of it. We are dead to it. So according to the Bible, while we may be physically alive, and while we may even think of our lives as generally fairly happy and be contented with them, it doesn't change the fact that we are dead to reality. We're living out of touch with the way things really are. And this passage goes on and describes what that looks like. What do dead men walking look like? And it gives us three examples of that in verses 2 and 3. First of all, it says, dead people are those who follow the course of this world. It simply means we're, we're living our lives just like everybody else around us is living their lives. We, we take our cues from the culture around us, the things that we choose to love and to value and to pursue and the kind of life that we view as successful. We get all that information from just the way people around us answer those questions rather than getting that information from God. It's as if life is, is um, a float down a river on a raft. And there you are in the rubber raft, and you're enjoying the sun and maybe even having a good time. But, but you're not really determining where you go. The, the river is determining where you go and how fast you go. That's all determined by the current. Dead people are those, according to the Bible, who think and choose and live just like everybody else. We're going along and pursuing the same things everybody else around us is pursuing. Secondly, not only do dead people follow the course of this world, but they follow, the Bible says, the prince of the power of the air. That's New Testament language for saying Satan. Actually follow Satan. Not often in an overt way. People don't typically, with a very few exceptions, overtly or knowingly say, I'm worshiping or following or bowing my knee to Satan. And yet the Bible says all of humanity is doing that. Because as it turns out, according to what God tells us in the Bible, Satan is the one who ultimately is determining the course of the river that we're on. It turns out this river that we can naturally float down isn't aimless or happenstance. It just happens to flow in this direction. It's going somewhere and its course is being determined by God's enemy. You see, the Bible will not let us forget the fact that all of humanity, whether we're aware of it or not, makes no difference. The Bible insists we are trapped in a battle for our affections and for our heart. But here's the interesting thing. God's adversary, Satan, that's what the name Satan means in the Bible, the adversary, the enemy. God's enemy is not looking for worshipers of himself. What he's looking for is worshipers of self, of ourselves. 
He doesn't need people to crown him God. He is simply trying to make sure that people don't crown God as God. And he often does it by getting us to worship ourselves. That leads to the third and the final description. Uh, Dead men walking are people who follow the course of the world, follow the prince of the power of the air, and lastly, they are people who carry out the desires of the body and the mind, verse 3, and live in the passions of our flesh. Dead men walking are people who follow their own thoughts and their own feelings as the main guides to what's right and wrong and how to live life. There's so many echoes here of the early chapters of the Bible, Genesis chapter 3, where the very first sin took place. And like Adam and Eve, we are gods, at least unto ourselves. That's the idea the Bible's trying to, to get about. I, I will decide for myself what is right. I will determine for myself how to live. Thank you very much. And I will trust myself, not, not God. You see, Eve saw what God had said. But then she saw what seemed best to her her thoughts and what she desired, and the two were in conflict. And in that critical moment of decision, she chose to trust herself. The original sin was a dethroning of God. Or we might even say the de-godding of God. It was a declaration of independence, a refusal to acknowledge that God knows best, God loves me, and I can trust God. It was a rejection of all those things. No, I love myself better, and I will trust only me. It de-gods God. And we've all been doing it ever since. The Bible says that's what dead people do. We lean on our own wisdom, that's carrying out the desires of the mind, and we lean on our own desires, carrying out the passions of the flesh or the desires of the body, to determine what's best for us, what we're pursuing, what we want. And we do all that rather than trusting him. We're blind to his light. We're dead. This is what the Bible means. We saw all this acted out in real time when we were going through the book of Exodus with the ancient Israelites repeatedly throughout that narrative we saw God's people, the ancient Israelites seek to love him and trust him but then go back on their promise to love him and trust him and continue to follow their own desires instead of his for example in chapter 4 God says he would save them and they they thought that's wonderful and they bowed to worship but then right away in chapter 5 the Pharaoh puts the screws down on them and makes their life harder and they immediately then reject God because life got harder when they trusted him And so often, when God's way is harder, faith starts to erode and self-reliance comes up and pulls on us and says, you don't want to do it God's way. You want to do it your own way. The pattern repeated itself later in chapter 12. God is getting ready to complete the tenth and final plague. And the Israelites said, absolutely, we will trust you. And it worked. The Pharaoh let them go. And as they're leaving Egypt, finally being freed from slavery... The very next day, they're backed up against the Red Sea, and here comes the Pharaoh's army to kill them, and they feel pinned, and they feel trapped, and out of fear, they reject God, and they're not trusting him anymore. And similarly, in times of fear, faith often erodes, and self-reliance pulls on our hearts, and we have those decisions. Am I going to trust God, or am I going to trust what I see and feel and fear? Well, even after they got through the Red Sea, which was a pretty miraculous event, you think that might have have cemented their trust in God and 
they see in chapter 15 the dead bodies of the Egyptian soldiers on the shore and they do, they worship God and they thank him for saving them and they trust him but by the very next chapter they're out in the wilderness and they see no steady supply of water, no steady supply of food and they begin to grumble and accuse God of leading them into the desert to kill them even after he just saved them. Because you see, lack of necessities and a lack of financial security often causes faith to erode and self-reliance to pull on our hearts. Trust yourself, not God. And just one more. God finally brought them to Mount Sinai in chapter 19. And he, he told them to prepare to meet him and hear his voice. And they said, absolutely. And they did everything that he said to meet him. But then when they heard his voice and they saw the thunder and lightning, God was scary. And they shrank back in chapter 20 and said, we don't want anything to do with God. We don't want to go meet with him. Moses, you go meet with him on our behalf. You see, God often does things and says things that surprise us. They don't line up with our conception of how God should act or what he should say. And when those times happen, when God is different than what we think he should be, sometimes faith erodes and self-reliance pulls on us. These are dead hearts. We cannot sustain obedience and trust for God. Friends, which part of that river does your raft typically traverse? Pain versus comfort. Uh, when fear and anxiety rise, is that what rocks your faith most and tempts you more to trust yourself and other people rather than God? Perhaps it's unmet wants or even unmet needs. Is, is that what makes it hard for you to trust God? Or maybe when God acts differently or teaches things that we don't expect him to, where are you most likely to lean on your own thoughts and feelings rather than trust God. And this current pandemic is making all of our lives harder in some ways. Some of us, perhaps more so than others, but everybody's being affected. How does this strain that's being put on you physically or relationally or financially or emotionally, so many different levels, what impact is that having on our relationship with God? It's worth pondering on this Easter Sunday morning in light of, of, of the resurrection of Jesus. Because of who God says he is. Our passage tells us that we're, we're slaves to our bent toward self-trust rather than God-trust. So where does that leave us? Where does that leave us? If we're dead, what hope do we have? Well, that's where we get to the good part. This is where Easter Sunday starts to become so exciting. Because verse uh, 4 opens up with the two simplest and most profound words in this entire passage. But God. But God. Being rich in mercy. Because of the great love with which he loved us. Those are two words that will absolutely change your life. But God. Like Valjean in Les Miserables, we, we've been caught right-handed, as it were. We're, we're standing dead, guilty, before the priest. Our entire life and our entire future, the Bible says, hang in the balance, waiting for the words that will either condemn us or free us. We stand before the righteous judge of the universe. What will God say? What kind of person is he? 
that becomes essential. We saw the Israelites in the same boat in Exodus chapter 34, a sermon we preached here just two weeks ago. They had vowed once and for all, despite all the previous failures, to do everything God told them to do. They vowed to obey God fully this time and not have their faith waver as it had at so many points in the past. But within just a few short weeks of making that heartfelt vow, they were making a golden calf idol and worshiping it. They were caught red-handed in that sin, and they knew it. What would God say? What is he like? That's why the climax of the whole book of Exodus we saw was in chapter 34, where God announces his character. He says he's compassionate, he's full of mercy, and he's abounding in steadfast love. For his people, they were saved because God spoke life to them, not the death that they deserved. So why did God do that? Well, because that's the kind of person he is. God has has bent toward mercy and and love. that's, That's who he is. It turns out that God is a lot more like the priest in Les Miserables than like Javert, the detective, the main antagonist, who is only interested in hunting Valjean down and making him pay for every crime, all justice and no mercy. If he had been caught and gone before Javert, he'd be dead. He was caught and he went before the priest and he lived. The priest let him go. The priest not only let him go, but he gave him all the silver. He said, not only will you not go back to prison, I'm going to give you the financial means to make a new life, which you can't get on your own. He was given a life instead of death. And there's only one reason. Because of the kind of person he was dealing with. The same thing is true here in our text in Ephesians chapter 2. But God didn't condemn us to death. Why? Because we learned two things about him in verse 4. He is rich in mercy and because of the great love with which he loved us. Being rich in mercy means that that God's bent is is to forgive, not to punish. That's his inclination. That's his desire. That's who he is. The Old Testament prophet Ezekiel, chapter 18, verse 32, God, speaking through the prophet, says, I have no pleasure in the death of anyone. So turn and live. He is pleading with us. Turn from your sins so that you can live. I don't want to execute you. I don't want to condemn you to the hell that your sin makes you deserve. I'm bent toward mercy. Turn so that you can find life. That's what it means that God is rich in mercy. And then it also says that he has great love toward us. This is not referring to just sentimental warm feelings. This is an unswerving commitment to our good and our benefit no matter the cost. It's that kind of devotion that the Bible has in mind when it speaks of God's love. Romans chapter 5 verse 8 The Bible says that God demonstrates his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. I tell my family 
a lot, numerous times, as my kids were growing up throughout the years, I've told my wife or my kids, I love you so much, I would die for you. And of course, I, I mean it when I say those words, but I've never had to do it, obviously. <laughs> and I would hope that, heaven forbid, should a situation arise where their life was in danger, but I could interpose and lay down my life for them, I hope that my love would rise to the occasion and that I would die for them. I certainly intend that that would be true. But here's the amazing thing about God's love. God isn't just telling us, I love you so much that I would die for you if you ever needed it. (laughs) No, we already needed it, and he already did. He already did. He's already died for us. And he did it when we weren't even asking him to. While we were still Sinners, when we we weren't returning his love or giving him a reason to love us. As Tim Keller says, Christ is there hanging in agony on the cross. And he's, he's looking down on sinful humanity, mocking and rejecting him, rejoicing even at his suffering and his undeserved death. And then in the greatest act of love in human history, he stayed. He stayed on that cross until his life was done. He laid down his life for sinners. God demonstrates his love. He shows it. He proves it. Not because he just would die for us, but because he did. Friends, that's the good news that the Bible is getting across to us. That God became a man himself, the man Jesus, to live a righteous person's life in our place and then to die a sinner's death in our place. If we repent, that is, turn away from our dead selfness and come to Jesus empty-handed, fully acknowledging, I'm caught red-handed, I've got nothing, I've got no excuse and no way out of this, and we rely fully on his mercy, when we do that, He pays the penalty for our sins and our record is wiped clean. That is the good news of the God who loves us that much. So I have to ask for everybody who is tuning in to this message, have you repented of your sins the way the Bible describes repenting? That doesn't mean generally thinking of ourselves as Christians or simply believing in God. It means to to openly declare out loud with words that, that we really mean in front of God and other people that you are dead in your sins and you can do nothing about it. And you are leaning wholly on God's mercy and Christ's sacrifice in your place to pay for your sins. Have you been moved to do that? Have you done that? There is no time like the present. And I'll tell you, if if this pandemic and the shutdown and everything associated with it is telling us anything, it's giving us a real clear picture of just how little this world has to offer us. Don't you think? I mean, really, if this is the best the world can do, then what are we hoping in? 
if, if all of our dreams and all of our building of businesses and socking away money for retirement accounts could just be ground to a halt by a virus that we could see the likes of again and again? Is this the best we can hope for? This world regularly writes checks that it simply cannot cash. It's trying to pay us with funny money. It's making promises to us it cannot fulfill. Friends, let me urge you, don't believe those promises anymore. Wake up from the stupor. Come out of the shadows. And by God's grace, be done with it. And come into the light of God's truth and love and mercy. Because there is great news if you do. That leads us to our third and final observation from this passage this morning. First, our state before God is that we are dead. Secondly, what kind of God are we dead before? We are dead before a God who is full of love and mercy. And here's why that's good news. Because the impacts of the resurrection of Jesus are also on us. Verses 5 through 7. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. For by grace you have been saved. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. You know, one of the interesting things about the resurrection of Jesus in the Bible, when you read what the Bible says about it, is that the resurrection itself, though it's a miracle, clearly it's a supernatural event. Jesus literally died, was dead for three days, and then literally came back to life. Clearly that's a supernatural miracle. But the interesting thing is in the Bible, like the miracle itself doesn't seem like that big a deal. The Bible doesn't dwell on the sheer fact of the resurrection as if that in and of itself is the main thing to take away. I mean, after all, this is God we're talking about here, right? So of course he can raise people from the dead. That fact alone isn't the main emphasis of the New Testament. No, the emphasis is on a different place. The emphasis in the New Testament when it talks about the resurrection of Jesus is the impact that Jesus' resurrection has on you and me. This wasn't just something that happened to him. This is something that can happen to us and does happen to people every day. Consider the two phrases here in verses 5 and 6. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, God made us alive together with Christ. So the resurrection didn't just happen to Jesus. But it's something that happens to us. It's not like God says, hey, I raised Jesus from the dead. Isn't that cool? I mean, it doesn't really have anything to do with you. But I did that to him and so I could do that for you. That's actually not what the Bible says. What the Bible says is you can have new life in Christ. You and I can actually participate in the resurrection life. Just as Jesus was given new life, so we too can receive the new life that he was given. We participate in his resurrection when we become Christians by receiving new life. Again, that same pattern was set in the Bible from the very beginning. You saw it in the, the book of Exodus. 
The pattern of Exodus is clear when you step back and take the whole book in one sweep, all 40 chapters. The final few chapters record the people of Israel obeying God fully and in every detail. Over and over and over again, more than a dozen times, it says they did everything exactly the way God told them to. Which is remarkable at the end of the book because we've read the entire book beforehand and we realize that's never happened before. They never obeyed God fully. Over and over again, we saw that pattern of, yeah, we'll obey him partly and then we fail repeatedly. And then here they are at the end of the book with a newness of life, delightedly and joyfully obeying God perfectly. That begs the question. It literally screams off the pages of the Bible. What changed? What changed? What made them such different people that they would obey God fully at the end when they didn't earlier? As you read through the story of Exodus, only one thing changed. Only one thing changed. God announced his merciful and loving nature. And then he acted on it by forgiving their sins and entering into the covenant relationship that they had broken. That's what changed. And the result is that they obey fully. Just as Valjean stood before that priest and knew he could be condemned but was given grace. And as the story goes on, it changes him. You see, it's, it's not that in, in Exodus, the Israelites obeyed God, finally figured out how to do it, and then God finally accepted them as his people because they got their acts together. That's not how the story goes. Their obedience did not lead to their acceptance. It's actually exactly the opposite. It's exactly the opposite. God accepts them because of his love and his mercy. And the result is we see them enjoy finally obeying. You see, God's acceptance of them was the shout, and their obedient new life was the echo. That's the pattern that is established in Scripture, and it carries forward right here into the New Testament. New life now means that we have the freedom to obey God fully rather than sin. In fact, we have the power to deny sin rather than be enslaved to it. And we have the heart to see that our deepest joy can only be met in God's presence, not in declaring our independence from him. That's what new life is all about. And we get that new life as Christians when we become a part of and come to participate in Christ's new resurrection life. Because Jesus was raised from the dead, you and I can experience new life. That is the promise of Easter. So Christians, members of Harvest Community Church, let me ask you, how can, how should the resurrection of Jesus produce new life in you this week, right now? What sins or temptations are you facing that you need to rely on God's power to overcome? Not work harder to get better at, but experience the spirit-filled freedom from the need to sin. Or alternatively, what opportunities to serve and to give of yourself to other members of this church or family or friends or neighbors are in front of you this week, that that the love of God for you could transform from duty into delight. I couldn't help but think of Jesus sitting before the temple, 
and seeing all these wealthy people come and, and put their offerings in the temple to support financially uh, the work of the temple. And then here comes this one poor widow. She's hardly got anything, and she takes what little she has to live on, and she puts her two little copper coins in the giving box. And, and the Bible's clear. It was all she had to live on. This is a woman who is so poor and so financially vulnerable that she had to make a choice between offering and dinner. And she chose offering. Now here's the crazy thing. Jesus commends her for it. He commends her for it. If you knew that woman and and you were walking with her that day toward the temple and you knew what she was about to do, what advice would you give her? That's a question that's haunted me these last couple of days. Would I advise her? Friend, there's plenty of rich people that can take care of the expenses of the temple. You need that money to live on. Hey, don't give that money. God doesn't expect you to do that. And while it's certainly true that she was not required to give it, she wanted to give it, and Jesus does not condemn her for it, just the opposite. He commends her. Why does he commend her? Because he saw what her actions said about her heart. She she chose, knowingly chose, to feel hunger so that she could participate financially in God's work. You see, her hunger was a part of her worship. Her hunger, sorry, was a part of the gift. And she knew it. And she chose it. Why? One word. Love. Love. She loved God because he first loved her. His love for her was the shout. Her love back to him was the echo. And it manifested itself in giving of herself, even of her money. And Jesus says, that's why wherever the gospel is preached, what this woman says will be told about her. Because that's the kind of heart that God wants to see in his people. In fact, that's the kind of heart that God produces in his people when we, as his people, are clinging to him, not to our own minds and our own passions. Members of Harvest Community Church, Let me suggest one very specific thing. We all have money from the CARES Act that has recently passed our Congress. Stimulus money coming to us in the form of checks. Now, doubtless, all of us can come up with many very legitimate uses for that money. And I'm certainly not saying you shouldn't. I have no interest in telling any one of us what to do with that money. But in light of what we're reading here, might I suggest that we at least stop as individuals or families, and consider and dare to pray and ask God. This windfall, this money coming to us that none of us was planning on a month ago, and it's about to drop in our laps. God, what would you have us do with this? Would you have us support Harvest Community Church at a time where giving is invariably going to go down for a little while, while our expenses will not? Would you have us use it to help meet the needs of people in our families or in our neighborhood or other people that we know through work who have specific needs that we could help meet? How might God lead you to use some of that money to bless people? 
There are so many opportunities around us. And I've got to admit, the vast majority of the time, I don't even see them. Let us pray to see the opportunities and to walk toward people, not out of duty, but may the love of God for us move our hearts to do it out of delight. So the resurrection of Jesus means new life for us, a newness of life that we participate in, but it means one final thing, verse 6. It also means that God the Father raised us up with him, God the Son, with Jesus, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That's huge. That's huge. Because he not only gave us new resurrection life now for our present, but he has also changed our eternal destiny. What this means is that we have a seat with our name on it at God's table. That's what that means. It means that that a Christian has a home in heaven. Our daughter, who's been away at college and just recently moved back, she's lived more of the last four years apart from us, living in Southern California rather than in Oregon. She's lived there more than here, but there's always been a place for her here. This has been home, and she knows it. Why? Because this is where she belongs. There is a place for her here. And that's only the thinnest echo and shadow of the reality that the resurrection of Christ creates for every Christian. The reality that there is a place for you, a real home of acceptance and of love that cannot be shaken by economic woes and viruses and death and relational strains and your name is over the door and all of that has happened because Jesus Christ rose from the dead. And with that knowledge, when that knowledge comes to full flower in our hearts, Joy becomes secure even when all hell is breaking loose around us. Because our hopes are not fixed on this empty, check-bouncing world. Our hopes are fixed on our home in heaven. Why can I be so sure of that? Because Jesus rose from the dead. Friends, how can your true home in heaven fuel your endurance right now? And bring confidence in place of fear or anxiety during this pandemic. Oh, beloved, let us us pray to see the needs around us. Let us confess any sins that we have or temptations that we are facing. Any sinful fear or anxiety. Let us ask for God's Spirit to fill us today, Christians giving us an experience of the resurrection life that he's already secured for us through his own resurrection. The the life that he secured for us the day death died and Jesus rose. Let me pray and then we are going to sing the glories of our creator. Sing loud, sing from your heart and let's worship God. Jesus, thank you so much for the truth of your death on the cross for us. For the hope of your resurrection, not only for you, but for us, God, thank you for being the kind of person who is bent toward mercy, not condemnation, who loves us with a steadfast and great love, the likes of which we yearn for and we try to pursue in every relationship, but we never quite find until we run into you. A boundless love that has made a way for us to have new life now. And hope for all eternity. I pray for everybody listening to this. God, that you would move in their hearts. For those who are already Christians, would you give us a fresh filling of your spirit and experience of resurrection life.
for those listening who are not yet yours because they have not repented of your sins, I pray that you would grant them the gift of repentance, that you would move dead hearts to life, that you would give us the desire to be done with the stupor of this world and to come into the fresh air of your glorious grace. Move amongst us now, God. We pray for our good, for your glory. Receive now the praise of a grateful people as we sing to you. In Christ's name we ask it. Amen.